the full picture of love, which of course is presented to us by the Lord himself, already unites the two elements that we talk about separately under these term, under these labels of agape and eros, and then try after the fact to sort of bring a little bit closer together. But what I'm saying is that they're together already from the very beginning. This is Made for Love, a Catholic podcast about real people living out the call to love. I'm your host, Sarah Perla. Today on Made for Love, we're talking about love itself. What is it? How do we think about it? Do we think about it as much as we should? For today's episode, you'll need your thinking caps on for theology professor Dr. Adrian Walker, and we'll also be hearing witnesses from three women who all work for the church in various ways. And this episode may not be best for kids. We're going to start with Alice. I'm Alice Heinzen. I am the director of the Office for Marriage and Family Life at the Diocese of La Crosse, Wisconsin. I am a wife of 38 years to my amazing husband, Jeff, and I'm a mother to three grown children who are all married and have given me the blessing of seven grandchildren. Alice agreed to be my first guinea pig when I first started the podcast. So we recorded this almost a year ago. (laughs) So sorry, Alice. It took forever to figure out what I was doing. Alice is used to giving marriage prep talks, so she was totally prepared to talk about the different facets of love. If you've read C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves, you'll know what she's talking about. The Greeks have more than one word to describe love. Here in the United States, we're a little impoverished. You have a word, love, which is easily confused. So that's why I think the Greeks were kind of on to something, because they had a word to describe the attraction, the desire. They had a word to describe, you know, what it means to will the good of another. They had a word to describe the mannered, civil respect we owe each other. They had a word to describe the sacrificial nature of it. So here are our vocabulary words for the day. Eros, storge, philios, and agape. And please, if you're a Greek scholar, do not tell me how I'm mispronouncing those things. Alice explains these terms in the context of meeting her husband, Jeff. I met Jeff on a snowy winter night in a very small town in northern Wisconsin. And I can tell you that the night that I met him was a a night where... We knew that there wasn't going to be school the next day, and oh, by the way, I was a teacher at that point, and teachers get really excited when they know they're coming up on a snow day. So my roommate and I went down to um, an establishment to celebrate the fact that the next day was going to be a snow day. And when I walked into that establishment, sitting on the far side on a tall stool, was this guy. And I'm going to tell you, when I looked across that room, I saw him, and I saw a good that I wanted to possess. He was, like, awesome. I mean, arrows, it was there. All right? You got to love the Wisconsin way of talking. Alice went to a bar and saw an attractive man. Thankfully, my parents had taught me that there was more to love than just that very strong passion and desire. Now, I'm not sure the world today teaches the kids that as well as my parents taught me. Because I know now when people feel that kind of attraction or that passion, they just go for it. I'm so glad I knew there was more because otherwise I would have walked across that bar and I would have jumped him on that bar stool. 
But I knew there was more to it. So instead, I used my manners, and I used respect, and I used my civility, and I went over there, and we engaged in a conversation. So if you will, I, I exercised love in the form of storge, civility and respect and manners. And he and I had a very, you know, short little exchange and conversation, and I found out a lot about him, actually, in about five minutes. In their conversation, Alice learned that Jeff was Catholic, too, that they both came from big families, that both of their fathers owned their own businesses, and crazily enough, both of their mothers were named Rita. Alice left the bar, but Jeff somehow got her number anyway and asked her out. We dated for about three months before we got to the next stage of love. And maybe some of the listeners don't know this, but after about three months, Jeff wasn't as good as I thought he was that first day I saw him. He had some, like, very irritating habits and things that he would do that really put me over the edge, you know. And i got to be honest, he was finding the same thing out about me, that there were things that I did that were, were just kind of stretching it out, like, should we stick it together or not? Well, that's when we had to start exercising filial swans. And filial's love is willing the good of the other, which meant we had to start correcting each other. With charity, of course. Maybe sometimes not. But most of the time with charity. <laughs> and the two of us would really, you know, we had to make each other better people. So we stuck it out. There was conflict. And then there was resolution. But we really learned over the next year how to really give and receive each other well in our relationship to the point that Jeff finally bent a knee, got down, and asked me to marry him. There must be something magic about that three-month mark. Because I remember even in high school, when our religion teacher taught one class about dating, which, by the way, was like the class that everyone waited for, he talked about three months as this testing moment. I'm sure that someone's done research about this. So now we're married, all right? Now we, we are able to marry, and at that point, we were able to wrap the passion from Eros along with the Phileos and Storge and put it all together, and praise be Jesus Christ, we conceived this beautiful baby boy. And it wasn't until the delivery of our first child that I really had a physical feeling of what agape love is, which is I'll lay my life down for another. Because when that baby was born, the first thing that happened is I saw Jeff hold this baby boy, and Jeff was no longer just my husband. He was a dad. He was a father. And Jeff said, Alice, I looked at you and I realized you're no longer just my wife, you're a mother. And both of us experienced the sense that if anybody comes after this kid, they're going to have to cross us first. We will die for this child. We will die to protect him. We will die to protect our family. And that's the first time that we really realized what Jesus Christ really fully, I felt it in my bones, what that meant to have a son sacrificed, to give up your life for another. Alice also talked about watching her children learn these facets of love as they grew up. It became her job to guide their grasping desires to good ends. Next, Dr. Adrian Walker from the Catholic University of America, which, by the way, is across the street. So if you notice that 
you know, I have a lot of people from CUA, that would be why. Practicality. Anyway, Dr. Adrian Walker challenges us not to make these distinctions too rigidly. My name's Adrian Walker. I'm a visiting associate professor of theology at uh, Catholic University of America. The day that I interviewed Dr. Walker, the gospel was when Jesus asks Peter three times if he loves him. So in English, we have Jesus saying, do you love me three times? But in Greek, the first two times, he says, agapasme, do you love me? And Peter answers, you know that I love you. And his word for love in Greek is philo. And then the third time Jesus asks him, philesme, he uses the same verb that Peter is using. And Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I, I love you, philo, koti philotse. And it struck me that there's a connection between this scene with the threefold question about whether Peter loves the Lord and the bit in the Last Supper where Jesus says that greater love hath no man than that he lay down his life for his friends because the two words appear there greater love hath no man that's agape that's a, the, a noun form of that verb agapo but then the word for friends is philus and it's it's related to the same verb that that Peter has been using to respond to the Lord's question and, the, and then the third time around Jesus himself uses to ask the question and it struck me that it's sort of as if Christ is saying, do you love me enough, A, to recognize that I laid my life down for you, my friend, and B, to do the same for me by feeding my sheep? So in the Greek, you can find connections that we miss in English. Jesus is asking Peter if he has the love that Jesus has and is willing to lay down his life. And of course, at the end of this conversation, Jesus affirms that since Peter has said yes, Peter will indeed, quote, stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go, end quote. John 21, 18. Because everybody always talks about agape, right? That, that word has kind of passed even into at least church circles, if nothing else, right? And the idea is that agape is sort of the summit of love. If, if you approach the text with that assumption in mind, it could appear that Peter's response is sort of on a lower level. Um, well, philia or is, is, is a lesser sort of love than agape, but actually it's the other way around. If you, if you understand that greater love hath no man than that he lay down his life for his friends, so that agape love becomes friend love in that sense, then you realize that actually what Peter is promising is the fullness of love, is a love that responds to Jesus's agopic friend love and in responding to it, imitates it and sort of conveys it, passes it on to others. So Dr. Walker thinks we may have overemphasized agape or sacrificial love. This isolation and sort of undue exaltation of agape causes a failure to see how rich the phenomenon of love really is. Everybody who has truly loved another person, and especially God, right, knows that there are moments when love takes the form of sacrifice. And that sacrificial dimension is always there somehow. But it would be one-sided, I think, and, and reductive to 
claim that love is simply about sacrifice, as if the first thing that you do is immolate yourself, right? I'm, I'm going to light my funeral pyre now for you, baby. <laughs> and, Perhaps I don't like you at all. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's right. That's right. I can't stand you, but I'm going to sacrifice myself for you, and therefore I love you. It's much more complex than that. While sacrifice is built into love, we shouldn't fall into this view that unless we're really suffering, we must not actually love the other person. So that's why Benedict in the encyclical Deus Caritas says, says that we need to think of love as kind of a harmony of eros and agape. But I would go even further and say with some of the church fathers that that's actually not even a helpful distinction. The 5th century or 6th century, I guess, father who wrote under the name of Dionysius the Areopagite has a beautiful passage in his book on the divine names, which was much commented on in the Middle Ages. Both Albert the Great and Thomas Aquinas commented on the work says that according to scripture, and he shows this, agape and eros mean the same thing. And at the core of the love that those two words refer to is precisely ecstasy. And he defines ecstasy as a response to the good or the beautiful, which is so powerful that, as he puts it, it doesn't permit you who are having that experience to belong to yourself anymore but to belong to the beloved. And that's a beautiful way, again, of capturing both dimensions in one. You see that there's a response to and a delight in beauty, quote-unquote eros, and at the same time, a beautiful selflessness that has nothing to do with grasping sort of concupiscently, avidly to sort of fill up, to fill up an emptiness and make yourself feel better by consuming the other. I hope y'all are tracking. Believe it or not, this was something of a sidetrack to the topic that I invited Adrian to talk about, which is the love of wisdom or philosophy, which has guided his own life. When would you say that you fell in love with philosophy? Oh, that's a good question. I think it happened in stages. I think I can see certain, or identify certain events in my very early life or certain attitudes even, or certain moments that foreshadowed, let's call it somewhat pretentiously, a philosophical vocation. Then I remember beginning to think in earnest when I was about 12 years old, a teacher, he showed us a, a silly film whose content I can't even remember, and then asked, why does man create? I guess the film had something to do with the creative impulse. And I realized I didn't know the answer, but I wanted to find out. I tried to answer the question on the basis of what I thought I knew about human nature, as it was accessible to anyone who paid sufficient attention to the basic shape of that nature. And that, that's, that's philosophy. Then when he was 15, Adrian was baptized, and the following year he became Catholic. Those two events, which are really just sort of two phases of the same event, also marked a milestone because it gave me a worldview that, because it wasn't obvious to everybody else, had to be explained. So Adrian studied philosophy in college and just kept going. I'm really interested in understanding the whys and wherefores of, of our faith, of the Catholic faith. I, I want to see how it all fits together. We talked about how philosophy, spending time thinking about things, is a way of loving. Things are full of truth, goodness, and beauty. They're, they're pulsating with that kind of life, if you will, precisely to the extent that they, they mean more than themselves. They point to more than themselves. 
they open up more than themselves. So every person, animal, plant, rock, in front of us is something that can point us to a deeper reality. A lot of people experience that most profoundly when they fall in love. They probably don't say it in that way, but something or someone catches their eye and makes them wonder. So we all do philosophy, even if we don't think about it, because we want to love and we want to understand things. Suppose that you had this idée fixe that to love meant simply and always to take the initiative, simply and always to give, and never to be responding to a goodness or a beauty that you see. Now put yourself for a minute in the, in the position of the person who has to receive that kind of love. Wouldn't you say, if you were that person, yeah, but don't you love me? The, the person of the other disappears. Then the question becomes, if, that, if, if you're trying to love without responding in any sense at all to the goodness of the person you love or the beauty of the person you love, if your love isn't actually generated as a response to that beauty, then are you really loving the other person? And then if you're not loving the other person, then what happens to your much vaunted love? Great question. Now we're going to hear from Anna Carter, whose work is to help people understand that romantic or sexual love is not the only or the highest love. I'm Anna Carter. I'm the co-founder of Eden Invitation, and we're a movement for millennial Catholics and Christians who experience a same-sex attraction or gender discordance opportunity just for community and uh, conversation together as a church. Eden Invitation is based in Milwaukee, where they have a weekly book club. The next book is Lewis's The Four Loves, and that's a total coincidence, y'all. I think it's really easy to think about love as what I feel when love really resides a lot more in what I do. We are all called to love no matter our state in life. Anna lives with roommates. Am I going to do the dishes to keep the kitchen clean, or am I going to go ahead and, like, do this other thing that I want to do, you know, uh, am I, I'm pretty loud. Am I going to keep my voice down, you know, after like 10 p.m. So the, the girl who has to get up super early in the morning can actually sleep or am I going to be like, screw it. I'm just going to talk in my normal volume and who cares. I think we see that no matter what our state of life is, no matter what our job is, no matter what our career is, we all have opportunities to put other people before ourselves and we either take it and we choose love or uh, we choose selfishness. Single people have a lot of opportunities to love. So the idea that marriage is the only outlet for love is reductive. I have a lot of friends who are really involved in specific apostolates, youth or young adult ministry or corporal works of mercy with the poor. And you can really see the love that's present in that, even if it's their job, even if it's the thing they're getting paid to do. But it requires so much time, energy, so much of your heart, so much of your emotional life. Like Jesus says, anybody can love people that love them. He talks about that in the gospel. Like anybody can love the people that love them back. But when it comes to dedicating your time, your professional life, your emotional energy to people who might not even notice or might not be grateful, that takes a lot of grace, a lot of discipline, a lot of authentic love. And of course, the greatest love story in any human person's life is or could be that of God's love for them. The greatest love story of my life is my relationship with God. Certainly the most dramatic 
but it's really the love that has defined my life and my life's trajectory for a really long time. Um, I was pretty young when I had my first conversion, as they say, to Christ. About 14, that, that love relationship with God really became personalized. And I felt like God was for me as me and not just the human race in general. I hope you all get that distinction because it's fundamental. You learn from your parents, hopefully, or school or religious education, that God loves you. But at some point, that has to be received in your heart and in your soul. In fact, we all probably have to strive to keep receiving it our whole lives. Without that love of God, without the love of community, I wouldn't be doing what I am today, you know, with Eden Invitation. Like, you just can't risk the way that we're risking without the experience of love. What Anna means when she talks about risk is that she has gone public with two facts about her life. Number one, that she is attracted to other women. And number two, that she believes the Catholic Church's teaching on sexuality. Either of those truths can lead her to conflict with others. So knowing God's love and having good relationships with family and friends is super important. A lot of people, when they embark on a major undertaking, like no matter their faith background, entrepreneurs or authors, they all talk about their support system, you know, how they couldn't do it without them. Because it's a lot easier, I think, to leap when you know that even if you crash, (laughs) there's going to be some people there to piece you back together. So I think love and the support of love, the knowledge of being supported, the experience of being supported allows me to do the work that I'm doing today. So what is the goal of Eden Invitation? helping people to believe that this love, like this authentic, true love of God made manifest in his body, the church, that that's enough. That that love is foundational for a fruitful and an abundant life. And that an absence of romantic love with someone of the same sex isn't going to cripple you emotionally or make your life miserable. (laughs) That love is always bigger. (laughs) Love is bigger than that. Anna says one of the problems we've had in the church when we talk to or about people who are attracted to the same sex is that we only talk about what's not allowed, rather than how we are all called to be saints and that we are all called to chastity. These are the people who have encountered Jesus in some way, who believe or at least want to believe most days in a traditional sexual ethic, but they aren't always sure what that means for their life, what it means for the whole of their life. So often when we talk about sexual attraction, LGBT issues in the church, so often we see it as an issue um, and we are very apologetic about it. And not in the sense of like, I'm apologizing, but in the sense of like, I'm giving reasons. So people know, okay, what this excludes. If I'm following the church teaching, I know what this excludes from my life, same sex, sex. But what does it actually include? It's one thing to know what you're not supposed to do. Okay, well, what possibilities are there? Like, what choices are there? What ways am I being called to give my gifts? For some people with same-sex attraction, the traditional paths of marriage or religious life may not be open. You might find yourself in a situation where those traditional paths are closed to you. I think as a church, we don't often do the best job of helping people to discern what life looks like outside of those two traditional vowed paths. But this doesn't diminish the call to love and to give oneself to God. Now, I said to my counselor one day that I thought a person with SSA and I were basically the same in the same boat as single people. And she just kind of gave me this look and said, it's not the same. So I asked Anna if she could speak to that. There's some similarities of struggle in, you know, the sense of loneliness, the fear about the future, the need to find balance and general health, integrated health as a single person, uh, to find 
intimacy and relationships, uh, those are all similarities. I think the challenge that comes in specifically for people experiencing same-sex attraction is it's kind of like an existential or like ontological crisis as well. Am I, I mean, my first thought is like, am I capable of an opposite-sex relationship? There's a sense in the person with same-sex attraction, especially if it's like really persistent and exclusive, that doors are shut that I have no power to open. I mean, technically, somebody that's exclusively opposite-sex attracted could still, you know, really double down on Catholic match or can go on blind dates that are set up by friends and family members or can, like, go visit yet another religious order or whatever it is. Whereas for people attracted to the same sex, it's like, well, that door is closed and there's nothing I can do to open it. And so I think there's a sense of, maybe a sense of lack of choice, lack of ownership in one's own life, which ultimately, I mean, our lives are God's, right? But I think that can be the challenge there for people experiencing same-sex attraction. There's also the wrestling that you have to do absolutely with what is this in my life? You know, we have the language of the church that this is subjectively disordered. It's easy to feel like something's wrong with you. Here are the common questions that Anna gets in her work. One of the questions I get a lot from young people is that someone is, like, missing out. That if somebody is experiencing same-sex attraction and is choosing celibacy, that the love in their life might be, like, second best or second rate or that they're missing out on something. Sex is powerful, right? Sex is really powerful, and I think it's easy to elevate it. I mean, who doesn't think, I want to give everything? Like, at some point in their life, sex is a really, like, concrete, whole-body gift. So what is the highest love? As Christians, we really ought to have a different supreme value than the world at large. And while, like, spousal self-gift is symbolic of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, the crucifixion wasn't sex. For the Christian, romantic love is only elevated insofar as it participates in authentic self-gift, even to the point of sacrifice. If your marriage is super selfish, it isn't better. It isn't better than other types of love, like not in a Christian sense. But like sacrificial, self-giving love, devoid of self-interest, that is the supreme value that we're working with here. Here's our last witness for today, talking about the highest love. Therese Bernpohl, Director of the Office for Family Life in the Diocese of Arlington. God is very much alive for me. So I can say that I check in with him quite frequently throughout the day. So are you familiar with the examine that St. Ignatius will ask people to do at the end of the day? But I think that's sort of a brilliant way to continue to come back to, to where am I? Where, where is God? Where is God in this moment? Where is God in the other person? Therese has been a mentor to me since she was my campus minister almost 20 years ago. As long as I've known her, she has not been shy at all in sharing the love of Jesus with anyone around. Cab drivers, people in line, anyone. It's as if I'm walking around and I'm looking at starving, thirsty people, and I have the answer. And and I cannot help myself but want to say, there's a remedy for that. You're starving, you're thirsty. Come to the water. Come to the living water and drink. Because he has every answer. He has every remedy. He can do all things. He wants to he wants to work miracles in our lives. He wants to, but we have to allow him. We have to believe in the supernatural. We have to believe in that Jesus loves us and that he's going to do great things for us. Not in the sense to build us up, but because we matter to him. 
And great things, of course, in my mind is by um, giving him the self, sharing himself with us, and, and, and helping us to get to heaven. Because that's really all that matters at the end of the day. Where are we going to live for eternity? A stop in Starbucks for coffee led Therese to this encounter. I was at Starbucks one morning. It was very early, maybe 7.30. And there was a young man there with a cup of coffee already. And I just was making small talk. And I said, oh, you're in your second cup of coffee already? To which he responded to me, yeah, yeah, I'm a stripper. <laughs> I thought, wow, okay. And uh, I said, I'm sorry to hear that. And he was sort of stunned. He looked at me and he just didn't say anything. And I didn't add anything. That's all I said. So we moved over to where we pick up our coffee. And he approached me and said, do you mind if I ask you why you said that? I don't mind at all. I just went in to say, you're worth more than that. And all the women who you strip in front of are worth more than that. Something about him, I thought maybe he was Catholic. And I can't remember what what the indicator was, but I said, are, are you religious at all? And he goes, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm Catholic. And I said, oh, okay. And then I just felt freer to share a little bit more about his dignity, his tremendous dignity as a person, and that God wants more for him. And he wants more for all the women who are watching him strip. You know, we basically started to have a conversation about what life meant and what he wanted for himself and his hopes and his dreams, and which did include going to mass and receiving and he was like, you're right, you're right, I have to get back to church. So I said, yeah, I mean, we all need we all need the Lord. There's nothing we can do without him. And he's real. So how is Therese so sure about what she believes? We have to talk to him. I have people who say, well, I don't have time to pray. And I'm like, okay, well, that's like saying I'm going to go play a football game and I'm not going to talk to the coach before I get in. You may be the greatest player in the world, but you're not going to make a difference to your team if you're not talking to the coach, right? Therese also reminds us that scripture is fundamental to knowing Jesus. As soon as you become immersed in scripture, your relationship with Jesus automatically changes. Your relationship with all the characters in the Bible change. And so I feel like that was the turning point in my going deeper into my friendship with the Lord. Therese and I taped this interview back in May, but I think what she has to say about consolation and desolation is relevant today. She talked about gifts that you sometimes experience during the day, little things, like seeing a bunny that makes you really happy. (laughs) Little things can be like little kisses from the Lord. That's also consolation. Those are consolations. Sometimes we're living in desolation. And so those little kisses aren't as readily available. And then we have to learn to navigate. St. Ignatius tells us we should store up in times of consolation so that we can make it and we remember those times that he is here. Because even if we should be in total ruin, He's still here. And I think we look to the cross, right? And how does Therese know that Jesus loves her? I don't say this in any trite way. I just have to look at the cross. How do I know Jesus loves me? Because he suffered. He suffered tremendous torture for me because he wanted to open the gates of heaven for me. And that's what scripture tells us. And I think that going back to what scripture says, Jesus' own words, I came so that you may have a life and have it abundantly. Everything about the Lord just points to his radical love for you and for me. Jesus is able to love his enemies, which were all of us except our Blessed Lady at the moment of the crucifixion, and draw us into the net of friendship. But the point is we're potential friends. And of course, our worthiness 
to be in friendship with him is also his gift. But it's a gift that he really gives. So it isn't just that he looks at us before our conversion and sees nothing but ugliness and then sort of holds his nose and says, I'm going to make you beautiful. It's more complicated than that. It's as if he sees a possibility of friendship or of goodness, which of course ultimately comes from him as well because he's the creator. But the possibility is there. It, it's, it's somehow in us even though we can never actualize that possibility on our own, both because we're sinners and because we're creatures who need his grace and so forth. And yet that possibility is somehow there. We're created in the image of God, really, from the very beginning. That's a description of, of what we are in our, in our deepest, in the, in the core of our being. So he does see a kind of a beauty there that he can respond to, even though in another way, that beauty ultimately comes from him. Of course it does, everything does. So that's it for today. I hope you all are keeping on, keeping on. That's basically what we can do. And loving the people around you. If you like what you've heard today, please support this project by sharing it with your friends, subscribing to Made for Love on iTunes, writing a review, or commenting on the show notes at marriageuniqueforareason.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and all those things. This is essentially a one-woman production, so yours truly did everything, with the notable exception of the music, which was composed and produced by Michael Taylor. Hello, this is Michael. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone.